Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we make our way uh, through Paul's letter that he wrote in the mid-50s AD to the church in Corinth, we come to a very well-known and beloved chapter, and so I would like to read to us the whole chapter today. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the Apostle Paul has been addressing the issue of spiritual gifts. And he has shown previously that the Holy Spirit has sovereignly, dis- bes- sorry, sovereignly bestowed a diversity of gifts upon each and every member of the body of Christ so that they may use those gifts for the common good. <clears throat> And we saw that that, uh, while every member is indispensable for a fully functioning church, we've also appreciated the fact that not all gifts are created equal. We saw last week at the end of chapter 12 that there's a certain order of operations, and we we saw that the ministry of the word, the gifts associated to the proclamation of the word of God, serve a formative and foundational role from which all other gifts flow out. Likewise, other gifts served a temporary role, which, sought to, which initially validated the preaching of the word. And as we see the Apostle Paul discussing this topic of spiritual gifts, I think we can begin to paint a picture of what was going on at Corinth during the time. You see, the Corinthians were placing an inordinate value upon what we might call the more showy gifts. 
The gifts where you are in the limelight, the gifts where you get to stand up and everyone gets to listen to you. Well, the gift that they probably were putting so much emphasis on was the gift of tongues. And they were using that gift, or at least trying to use that gift, to promote their own status at the expense of others. Well, that's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter 12, says you need to earnestly desire the greater gifts, or even the the greatest, highest gift. And he says, and now let me show you what that gift is. See, when the Apostle Paul now focuses on the topic of love, he's picking up what he said all the way back in chapter 8 when he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, to a congregation that had this unhealthy preoccupation with the gift of tongues, the Apostle Paul begins by painting a scenario where he could speak any language imaginable. He talks about speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. So not only all of the earthly languages, but also even the heavenly languages, the language that the angels speak in heaven. Now, Paul isn't necessarily suggesting that people who spoke in tongues spoke a heavenly language. Keep in mind, the Apostle Paul is being poetic here. He's he's using hyperbole, saying it doesn't matter what language you can imagine. Imagine if I could speak that language, if I had the gift of languages to speak any known language under the sun and even in heaven itself. He says, if I have not love. Here we see love as the essential ingredient for any exercise of spiritual gifts. No matter how extraordinarily gifted you are, if you are not motivated by love, both love to God as well as love to neighbor, you are completely useless. And so the Apostle Paul likens such a a gift of languages. He says, if I don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. This was before my time, but those of you who are older than me know that in the 70s, there was a show called The Gong Show, right? And it was a talent show, and in order to say that somebody is no good, what would they do? Hit the gong. Well, boys and girls, a gong is basically a huge, giant piece of metal that if you hit it with a big hammer, it goes bong, and it radiates this sound, and it's grating to your ears. Or think of a symbol, right? I, I, I think of the, the, the wind-up monkey doll that has the symbols, and it clangs those symbols back and forth. It's not a pleasant sound. That's not something you want to hear. Well, there's such cacophonous sounds. The Apostle Paul says, I have become like that if I have not love. Now, Paul goes on to imagine that he had all types of revelatory knowledge, whether he had all prophetic powers or could understand even the deepest mysteries of God's word and had all knowledge. It's interesting that Paul moves on now to knowledge because the Corinthians fancied themselves as a pretty knowledgeable church. They wrote to Paul. They said, well, we all have knowledge. We all know that idols don't really exist, and they were using their knowledge to justify any and all sorts of behavior. That's why Paul previously had to say that that knowledge puffs up. It makes you arrogant. It gives you an inflated sense of self-worth. And and back in chapter 8, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
I think this is a timely warning for us, especially as Orthodox Presbyterians who pride ourselves on theological knowledge. We rightly so in, uh, uh, you know, talk about theological and Christian education and think it's important for each and every Christian to study God's word and to study theology. But theological knowledge can be a trap. We might boast about how many books we've read or how many uh, books we have on our bookshelf at home. But if we are not pursuing theological knowledge out of a motivation for love of God and our neighbor, then that knowledge is useless, Paul says. It puffs us up. It makes us arrogant. And so ultimately, all theological knowledge should grant to us humility as well as lead us to love God and our neighbor more and more. Paul goes on from from the gift of tongues to the gift of knowledge to uh, the gift of, of having faith. He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. It's interesting that Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say that this mountain be moved and it will move. Well, here Paul's not talking about a mustard seed faith. He says, if I had all faith, if I had an infinite amount of faith, but if I didn't have love, he says, I am nothing. Not just to nobody, but nothing. All that knowledge, all that power amounts to absolutely nothing if it is not motivated by love. So moving on from theological knowledge and and faith that can move mountains, he then goes on to talk about the ultimate types of self-sacrifice. He says, if I give away all that I have, if I donate all of my belongings and I hand over my body to suffer to the point of death. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. But if somebody lays down his life for others, except they're not doing it for, for love. Paul says, I have gained nothing. No matter how great the sacrifice, if love is not behind it, it profits nothing. It's all in vain, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 15. Well, so far in this sublime chapter, the Apostle Paul has used the word love three times. And the Greek word there, translated love, is the word that you may have heard of. It's the word agape. And we may wonder at this point, well, Paul, you've used the word love three times, but you haven't yet defined it for us. Well, that's why, beginning in verse 4, Paul goes on to not just define love, but to describe it. And he goes on to describe it by by showing what love does. It's important to keep in mind that he describes love for us by using verbs. The way that it's translated in English might be a bit misleading when we read that love is patient and kind. These aren't adjectives. Paul isn't just describing love in an abstract, static sense, but he's describing love by using action words. We're not putting it under the microscope. We're seeing it in action. And so it's important to keep in mind. And so perhaps better, a better translated it could say, love waits patiently. Love shows kindness in an active sense. You see, agape love manifests itself in action. And it's not primarily a feeling. You see, the Greeks had a different Greek, uh, Greek word to describe that gushy feeling we have, that, that, that loving feeling that the, you know, the songs sing about. And the word that they used was eros. Well, eros comes and goes. 
We can lose that loving feeling. And I can't tell you how many times I've been speaking with people, and especially in the marriage context, where one spouse says, well, I just don't love the other person anymore. And what they're saying is, I've lost that loving feeling. But it's important to keep in mind that the scripture idea of love, the love, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is not primarily a feeling, but it is action. It shows itself in action. And so that's why uh, it's important to, to translate these words in an active sense, because they're verbs. The first verb we come across is that love is patient. It waits patiently. Literally, it's long-suffering, the opposite of being short-tempered. The Hebrews, their way of describing somebody getting angry is they would say that their nose got hot. And I always pictured the uh, cartoon bulls when, you know, they get angry and smoke would literally come out of their nose, right? And so if somebody's angry, their nose is hot. And yet, in order to describe somebody who is patient, who is slow to anger, the Hebrews would say that their nose is long. They are long in the nose. That is maybe a a better way of saying it is they have a very long fuse. They're not going to get angry right, right away. And by the way, that's how the Lord describes himself when he says, I am slow to anger. I'm long in the nose. I'm not going to get angry at you and fly off the handle right away. You see, loving someone involves not losing your temper with them, especially when they've already lost their temper, but dealing with them patiently and being long-suffering. Love is also kind. It's generous. It's benevolent. It treats others as you uh, would have them treat you. It does not envy. This is interesting because so often human tendency is that when something good happens to somebody else, we get jealous. We resent them because they have, uh, you know, wonderful things have happened to them. And then we look at our life and say, well, why hasn't this happened to me? See, love does not resent others because they may be more fortunate than you are. But it rejoices together with them. As Paul said back in chapter 12, when one member is is honored, we all rejoice together because we're all part of the body of Christ. Well, likewise, when the shoe is on the other foot, when something good happens to you and not to others, love shows itself by not boasting, not gloating in your success at the expense of others. And finally, Paul goes on to say that love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. Now, this would have hit home with the Corinthians because the the Apostle Paul has already told them at least twice in this chapter that they were puffed up, that they were arrogant. And in particular, it was their knowledge, their so-called knowledge, which was causing them to be puffed up. But he says, well, that is not love. Furthermore, he goes on to say that love is not rude, it is not ill-mannered, it is not disrespectful, it does not behave in an inappropriate way. This is important to keep in mind because we as Christians are called to speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth in love. And and when it comes to the time for us to speak the truth, if it comes off rude, then we have not spoken the truth in love but we've added to the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive enough. Let's not add to the offense by our rude and disrespectful or inappropriate behavior. That's not a loving way to go about things. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say that love does not insist on its own. Literally, it doesn't seek its own. 
And here I think we see the biggest difference between uh, agape love and eros love. Eros love, that loving feeling we have, which is driven, uh, d- d- uh, which is, shows itself in desire for the other person. Typically, it's des- we want that other person in order to please ourselves. It's a self-seeking, self-pleasing type of desire. Whereas agape love does not seek its own. It seeks the other's benefit. It seeks the other's well-being and sacrifices uh, a desire for self in order to please the other person. Goes on to say that love is not irritable. Now, this, of course, is the opposite side of the coin of being patient. If you're patient, if you're long-suffering, you're also not irritable, short-tempered. And he goes on to say that love is not resentful. Literally, the NIV does it best when it says it keeps no record of wrongs. How many times does somebody sin against us and we got our secret little score sheet? Mark it off. Mark it off. I'm going to save that for later. Next time, I'm going to bring up the past. Well, love doesn't do that. Love forgives and it forgets. It does not keep a score sheet. It does not keep a record of wrong or hold former sins against somebody else. Love, in verse 6, does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not, love does not take pleasure when someone else slips or falls into sin. There's a German word that's found its way over into English, schadenfreude. And it's that feeling that we get that when somebody does something wrong, we feel happy. It's taking pleasure in um, someone else's misfortune or fall. Well, that's not how love behaves itself. On the opposite, love rejoices with the truth. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says that love rejoices with the truth because we would expect him to say, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in goodness or righteousness. That's the opposite of wrongdoing or evil. But that's not quite what he says. He says it rejoices with the truth. And I think in order to to properly understand what the Apostle Paul is getting at here, when it talks about rejoicing with the truth, uh, we need to appreciate uh, the, the word translated there, with, or rejoice with. Literally, it's we rejoice together with the person when the truth is made known. And so if rejoicing at wrongdoing is laughing at someone else's expense, laughing at them, rejoicing with the truth is rejoicing together with them. And so love doesn't seek to hide the truth. It doesn't uh, uh, flatter people. It doesn't uh, tell, you know, uh, try to puff them up. It doesn't patronize people. No, it looks for the truth. And if the situation is bad, love wants to help. If the situation is good, love wants to celebrate. Well, then the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 7 to, to, uh, to string together these verbs when he says, love bears all things, believes all things, holds all things, endures all things. And this idea of, of, of the Apostle Paul saying all things suggests that there is no limit to which love would go. There's not a point where love finally says, okay, that's it. I've bared enough. I've believed enough. I've hoped enough, but not anymore. No, love never, ever fails. There's no limit to which it would go. 
And this idea of love bearing all things is a very interesting concept. The word bear is related actually to the, the same Greek word that describes a roof. And if you think, well, what does a roof do? I think it does two things. Number one, it supports the structure and it covers. And so this idea of bearing all things isn't just putting up with somebody, tolerating them. But bearing with all things suggests that you are giving this other person, this individual, the support and the protection that they need. You are covering them. And this may even involve covering their sins in the sense that you don't keep a scorecard, but you look the other way, as Peter tells us. In 1 Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say that love believes all things and hopes all things. It's important to keep in mind that he's not saying that we ought to be gullible or naive, believe any, in all, you know, anything that, that we're told, and since we're loving, we believe it. No. The idea here is that love never loses faith in somebody or writes them off. There's a certain unwillingness to receive a negative report, but a, a desire to want to put all things in their best light. How many times do we hear about somebody else and we immediately jump to conclusions and we assume the worst about that person? Well, that's not love. A loving way is to, is to uh, want to put things in their best light, to give that individual the benefit of the doubt, to believe and hope that they're going to do the right thing. And finally, he says that love endures all things. There's this, it, there's this perseverance, this never giving up with the individual, despite how many times they sin against you. Remember when Peter goes and asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times? You have to picture that Peter was probably thinking, oh, I'm going to really impress Jesus I'm being so generous here that I would be willing to forgive somebody seven times. Jesus says, I do not say to you that you should forgive them seven times, but seven times 70. And that doesn't mean whatever the math is that we can count that up and say, okay, well, at that point, right? Was it 490 times? I don't know. No, the idea is that we always forgive. We endure all things. There is no limit to which love will go. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that love never ends. Literally, he says it never fails. Uh, It's the same idea that, you know, a leaf on a tree is green and vibrant, but then when fall comes, it withers up and falls to the ground. Well, that doesn't happen to love. Love always will remain. But it's important to note here that Paul is making a transition here in verse 8 when, when he begins, when, when he's previously been speaking about love in action as it manifests itself in interpersonal level, the, the type of love that we have for our neighbor and how it's manifested between people to now focusing on how love itself exists on a cosmic scale. As he begins to meditate upon the age which is to come, And heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth, eternity, as he considers what what will continue into the new age, what will continue into eternity itself, and what will not. Well, first he begins by saying, telling us what will not continue into the new heavens and the new earth. When he says in verse 8, as for prophecies, they will pass away. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will pass away. You see, when Christ returns and glorifies us, we will have no need of special revelation since special revelation will have served its purposes in this present age. We won't need our Bibles anymore in heaven. We won't need our theology books. All those books that are collecting dust on your shelf, better get reading. Because when Jesus returns, they're going to be useless. They're going to burn up. You see, special revelation, all of the knowledge that we have been given right now, is, uh, uh, and all of the theology and all of the, the, the special revelation that we have will be useless in the age which is to come because God will fully reveal himself to us through Jesus Christ, his son. He goes on in verse 9 to speak about our present knowledge and experience of God when he says, we know in part. See, all that we know about God and his word is limited. All of the theology books in the world only scratch the surface of our knowledge and experience of God. And this is important for the Corinthians to hear because they were a church who valued knowledge at the expense of love. And I think it's important for us to hear too. But it's important to to hear Paul's warning here as he tells us just how little we actually know. And so true theological knowledge does not puff up, but true theological knowledge humbles us. It keeps us humble when we remember just how little we know. We know in part, partial knowledge. But when the perfect comes, as Paul says in verse 10, and here, of course, he's referring to the consummation, the, uh, the, at the, what will happen when Christ returns, when he makes all things new and reveals himself to us. That's what he means when he says when the perfect comes, all of those things will pass away. He explains this by using an analogy of, of being a child. He likens our present knowledge of God to a state of immaturity. It's as if we're all children, thinking like children, talking like children, reasoning like a child. I'm often struck by you know, the reasoning of a child, my four-year-old son, and what goes through his head. Well, Paul says we're all like that right now. We're all like children. He says, but... When I became a man, I put those childish childish things away. So also when Christ comes and gives us the fullness of revelation, we will have reached maturity. But I think in even speaking about what will happen when Christ returns, I think there's also a moral imperative here for us now. As Paul has already rebuked the Corinthians back in chapter 3 for acting in a childish manner. They thought of themselves as wise and mature. And Paul says, no, actually, you're acting like children. And so even with this recognition that our knowledge of God right now is partial and recognizing the fact that we ought to be humble and loving, there's also this command that even now we need to grow up and mature and put away those childish ways. He explains this even more by using yet another illustration that the Corinthians would have been familiar with when he talks about seeing in a mirror dimly. You see, in Corinth, they actually produced mirrors. They made mirrors. And the way in which they would make mirrors in the ancient world is they would take a piece of bronze, and they would polish that bronze until it was so smooth 
that you could see your reflection in it. Well, pretty accurate, but nothing compared to the type of mirrors that we're used to today. So the idea here is that Paul's saying that, that, uh, that uh, our knowledge of God is indirect. When you look in a mirror, if you think of, of a polished piece of bronze, you see your reflection, but it's not quite accurate. It's not quite right. You're not looking at yourself directly. And so it is with our present knowledge of God. Right now is the time where we walk by faith and not by sight. Our knowledge is partial. But in contrast to seeing a reflection in a mirror, which is indirect and not quite accurate, he says, but then when Christ returns, we will see face to face. You see, when our faith becomes sight, our knowledge will become experience as we, begin to, as we are able to experience heavenly bliss with our Lord. John speaks about that in his epistle in chapter 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Here, John speaks about that face-to-face knowledge and experience, uh, a transformative experience that we will have when Jesus Christ returns. That's what Paul's describing here. And we're no longer going to walk by faith, but by sight. We're not going to look into a dim mirror, but we're going to see Christ's faith, uh, glorified face when he returns. And then he talks about how, once again, how he knows in part, now, presently, And yet then, he shall know fully, even as he has been fully known. It's really interesting that in this chapter, this beloved chapter that I'm sure is familiar to each and every one of us today, the chapter that we call the chapter on love, Paul concludes the chapter by speaking not about love, but about knowledge. And I think, again, what he's doing here is he's bringing out the fact, as that he said back in chapter 8, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, love edifies. And he's contrasting uh, false knowledge with true knowledge, which ultimately shows itself in love. Back in chapter 8, he says this, and I'll read it again. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think you know something you're clueless. But then he goes on to say, but if anyone loves God, notice how Paul switched the word there. He didn't say if anyone knows God, he is known by God, but he says if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, we do not or should not boast in our knowledge of God, but we should rejoice in the fact that we are known by God. And we love God because he first, not just loved us, but because he first knew us. And as we grow in our, in our knowledge of God, we grow in our love of God. To know him is to love him. And so right now, we need to focus on loving God. And of course, that involves knowing more about him. But we always rejoice in the fact, not that we know God, but that we are known by him. And so that's what Paul's hope is. 
He says, right now, my knowledge is very limited. But when Christ returns, I will know my knowledge will become full even as I have been known by God. And so here we see that Paul's just rejoicing in the fact that God, uh, that God knows everything about him. He knows Paul. He knows him and loves him. And so Paul is looking forward to that day when his partial knowledge will be complete at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to talk about the one thing that's going to remain. Our knowledge is going to pass away. Prophecies, tongues, revelation, all of the stuff that we have right now, that's all going to pass away. But one thing that is going to remain is love. As he says in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These are the three theological virtues. These are the three things that characterize the Christian life right now. Faith, hope, and love. But only one of those things will be necessary in heaven. Right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. And yet, when faith comes, we won't need to walk by faith. Or when sight comes, we won't need to walk by faith. Likewise with hope. Paul tells us in Romans 8, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? None of us, when we get to heaven, are going to say, Oh, I really hope I get to go to heaven. No, because we're already there. Hope will have served its purpose. Hope will be fulfilled. And so while faith will have served its purpose. Hope will have served its purpose. The one thing that will continue through all eternity is love. That's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. As we consider this passage and see how love is both the eternal and the essential ingredient in all Christian service, I think it's helpful for us to ask at this point, well, how am I doing? How loving am I? Does love characterize my life? And a very simple way of testing whether love characterizes your life is by looking at verses 4 through the very beginning of verse 8 and taking out that word love and inserting your name. Let's just put me on the spot. Look there in verse 4. We're going to take out the word love and we're going to insert the name John. John is patient and kind. John does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Can I stop right now? (laughs) Clearly, clearly, none of us do this perfectly. If love is the fulfilling of the law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 13, then all of us have fallen short of fulfilling the law. None of us love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. None of us are always perfectly patient and kind and all of the rest. And so this should drive us to more humility and drive us to our knees to ask that the Lord by his spirit would work more love in our hearts. But it also should point us to Christ and the way in which he loves us. Because the only person for whom you could take out that word love and insert his name and have it fit perfectly, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Look again there at verse 4. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Christ bears all things. He believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus Christ never fails. Here we see our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how that perfection has been given to us and how that perfection, his love for us, motivates us to live lives of gratitude. As John tells us in John, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. May Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, continue to work faith and hope, but most importantly, love in all of our lives. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you so loved us that you were willing to lay down your life and become a curse for us so that we might become your redeemed people. Thank you also that you would give us the spirit of love who unites us together. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us, to conform us more and more into your image as you enable us not only to love God, but also to love our neighbor. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.